0: Have you ever written a song? Who's written a song? Don't be shy. Nobody's ever written a song? Mike. Mike is. <laughs> um, this question just occurred to me. I, I actually wrote one when I was dating Karen, uh, like, a, like a sort of love song, but it's more of a, uh, a faith song is what it was. Uh, the melody's terrible. Uh, the words are OK. But it occurred to me as we're singing, and Seth's been trying to pull in some songs out of Revelation, that in heaven, I think we're going to be not just singing new songs, but just a thought, writing new songs, right? You have all eternity to learn about Jesus, to learn about his kingdom, and, uh, and, and singing is, is core in scripture, it's core in our faith. I think we'll be writing new songs. You like that idea? I do. Um, In the meantime, we are in Revelation chapter 3, the last of the seven churches. Let's read the blessing together, and then we'll dig in. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Just a, a quick review of the seven churches. Ephesus had a forsaken heart, Smyrna, a courageous heart, Pergamum, a idolatrous heart, Thyatira, a lustful heart, Sardis, a dead heart, Philadelphia, a faithful heart, and this morning we're saying that Laodicea has a blind heart, and I think that will become evident as we get into it. So if you'd like to follow along, starting at verse 14 of chapter 3. Hopefully, by now, you're starting to see the patterns, right? To this angel of this church, I know your works. Uh, He who has ears to hear, picking up all that that, uh, really wonderful repetition. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as we said, this is the last of the seven churches. It also happens to be the worst of the seven churches. If you remember when I was covering Sardis in the middle, I said, you know, uh, it's not completely bad. There's just a few people faithful people there, Jesus says, so so it got a little bit of yellow mixed with that that, uh, salmon color, but not so Laodicea. There is not one positive word about this church. Worst of all, and I think you'll see this as well, they're probably more like the modern Western church, that's us, not necessarily Grace Church, but that's the stream we're in, than any of the other other six churches. Jesus started this letter as he did the others, beginning with this phrase, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, I I wish you were, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. With such a graphic phrase, uh, uh, we need to make sure we understand what Jesus meant here, because whatever it means to be lukewarm it's bad enough that Jesus said, uh, because of that, I'm just, I'm just going to spit it out of my mouth. Now, when I was first uh, a young believer, I remember uh, reading this, and I was confused because Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot, either one. And, and I thought, well, why would he want... That's to be cold. I don't know about you, but I, I always associate, you know, something hot, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus, right? We, uh, we say that phrase sometimes, or, you know, if you were dating somebody and they said, oh, how's it going with, with so-and-so? And you said, well, you know, things have grown a little cold lately. Well, we know what you're talking about, right? That, that's, in a relationship, that's not a good sign when things go cold. So why is Jesus saying, I wish you were cold Oh, I wish you were hot. Well, how does that cold thing enter in? Obviously, being lukewarm is bad, but cold and hot both seem to be a good thing. Why is that? Well, the most common explanation that, that I've ever heard also happens to me uh, to make the most sense to me is this water explanation, and it goes like this. There are two towns, so we've got Laodicea in the middle there. Hierapolis, uh, to the north, they are known for their hot springs, and it looks like this. There's all this calcium carbonate bubbling out of the, out of the ground, and it forms uh, these, these pools, and the, this just goes on and on and on. And uh, if this were the, the height of a tourist season, they would be filled. I mean, it's an extremely popular tourist destination uh, to this day. And so those hot springs, you know, uh, have a little bit of uh, therapeutic benefit to them. And then to the east, you saw Colossae, uh, they right by the mountains there. So this cold mountain spring water uh, comes out of that. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the good water they have. And uh, by the way, these two towns, Heropolis and Colossae and Laodicea, the three of them together, had a wonderful relationship. And uh, oh, there's the springs from uh, Colossae coming out of the mountains. And uh, this from Paul in Colossians. He writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you in those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, the church, the inner house. And when this letter has been, this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So that's not, probably not a, a letter from Paul. To Laodicea, but literally, Laodicea church is writing to the uh, uh, Colossian church, that is. So they, they've got this uh, wonderful relationship back and forth. Uh, but the way it sort of works itself out geographically here Hierapolis uh, has the hot springs, Colossae has the cold springs, and there in the middle, and what's between hot and cold, uh, in this case, geographically somewhat as well, Laodicea is lukewarm. So it would seem that Jesus was comparing the lukewarm waters of the Laodicean town to the healing hot springs of Herapolis and the refreshing cold waters of Colossae. Both hot and cold, therefore, represent purity, but of course, lukewarm was unpalatable. Unpalatable. And we've, we've all had that experience of lukewarm water being unpalatable, right? Especially on a, on a hot day and you, you go to drink water and, and, you, and, and you drink and it's, it's lukewarm. And, and that's okay if you're really thirsty, but especially if you think it's going to be cold and it's lukewarm. I mean, that, that's just horrible. You, you literally want, want to spit it out of your mouth. We need to see how strong this language is that Jesus is using here. By comparing a couple of translations, this is often helpful, ESV, I will spit you out of my mouth, NASB, exact same thing, NIV, very similar, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, then we come along with the Christian Standard Bible, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Let's play the old kindergarten game, which one of these does not belong? (laughs) We also have to ask, which one is the, more important question is, which one is the correct Translation? Well, let me uh, explain that the Greek word for when it's usually translated as spit is the word emesai, uh, which is where we get our word for emesis as in emesis basin uh, that you get at a hospital when you are about to throw up. Yes, Um, So the CSB is the most accurate translation. So I'm not just trying to be gross or graphic here. I just want us to understand what was Jesus saying? What did he mean? And this is exactly what he meant. The next verse helps us understand why he had such a strong reaction. Verse 17. For you say, so he's now putting uh, words in the mouth of the Laodicean church. You say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, which is not what you want to tell the Lord. You never want to tell the Lord, I'm okay. As a matter of fact, I don't need anything from you whatsoever. Right? Now, we would not say that, but we can live our daily lives in our relative Western prosperity, uh, and, and that's the way it can be. You say, I'm rich, I prosper, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We need to understand what was going on in Laodicea at this time. There's a lot of background information here that I think is very helpful that doesn't, isn't always necessarily as relevant in the other six churches. But I want to uh, give some of that background information so we understand especially this poor, blind, and naked that Jesus accuses them of uh, because it's, it's really, really important to, to the message Laodicea as a whole was experiencing the very opposite of being poor, blind, and naked. In fact, they were a wealthy and extremely prosperous town. At this stage of of human history, they were a a center for banking. They had a very strong export economy. And a couple of things they exported have to do with some of Jesus' words here. For example, physicians from Laodicea had developed an eye salve. Talk about Jesus saying, you need to get this salve from me. Two doctors from there were so famous that they actually put their inscription and names on uh, Roman coins. And you notice anything about the, that one coin there, a, a symbol that you see there? That's a snake with a, a, pole, a pole, or rather pole with a snake around it. Uh, which, of course, does go all the way back to Moses. Uh, but also this particular one is uh, from the Greek god Asclepius. And there was actually a temple to Asclepius in Laodicea. And Asclepius was, of course, allegedly, according to their beliefs, the god of healing and of medicine. So there was a a well-known medical school there, known all throughout the Roman Empire. And the main thing, and these two doctors were famous for, again, this eye salve. And they they exported that. Now, you might think, well, I know what, how good could this eye salve have been? Because we know what ancient medicine was like, right? leeches and bloodletting and, and give you lots of mercury and, you know, all these really uh, uh, horrible things which harm you and actually kill you. So how could good could this eye have been? Well, we also have to remember that we weren't the first things, first people to like discover important things, right? I mean, God has put in the natural realm everything we need, I think, to cure every last possible disease if he would allow us uh, to have it. Uh, For example, I just found out this last week that frankincense can, you've heard of frankincense? Gold frankincense and myrrh, right? Uh, Frankincense can kill cancer cells in the laboratory and in mice. It has a whole tons of of benefits. As a matter of fact, I realized I was taking frankincense for years, but but it is by, by its herbal name. Um, but, better than that even, there is another natural substance that when you pair it with frankincense, uh, uh, the, the, the research, the medical research actually says it has a magically synergistic effect, impact. Any guesses as to what would pair well with frankincense? Myrrh. I kid you not. This is in multiple medical journals. Frankincense and myrrh have a magically synergistic, powerful effect, all right? It's amazing. See what God has done? I also discovered that turmeric, I, I, I knew this, but it found out in a different way, that not only can it cross the blood brain barrier, but as it does, it can actually bind with aluminum and then uh, pull that out, which, of course, uh, many of you may not know, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at age 49, so we've always been sort of uh, aware of brain health and those sorts of things, so that's good to know. And my point is that this eye salve Developed in Laodicea, just because it's 2,000 years old, don't think it's just some sort of weird, you know, bloodletting, uh, leeches sort of thing. In fact, I would argue that because it was so popular, it probably did have some, some natural uh, healing effects to it. It was an effective uh, medication. So the town was very wealthy, which means they were rich. The town uh, exported this uh, world-famous eye salve, which means they could see. Lastly, Laodicea was well-known for exporting a uh, beautiful type of black wool, which means they were well-clothed. On top of that, archaeologists uncovered this 900... Oh, by the way, that's the statue of, uh, of Asclepius there. 900-foot-long um, stadium, which could seat as many as 25,000 participants. Right next to that is this 600-foot-long bathhouse, and uh, any guesses as to what the men would wear as they competed in the stadium and in the bathhouses and in the gymnasium? Absolutely nothing. They were, as Jesus says, naked. In fact, the Greek word for naked is gymnos, where we get our word gym or gymnasium, okay? So, we, so uh, anyway, you can go with that wherever you want. But um, my point is, I think part of what the Laodiceans would hear is when when Jesus called them naked, He said, "You're just like them. You're just like the rest of the world, reveling in all that they take in. You're just like them." Now, do you see why Jesus said they were poor? Blind and naked, they were, uh, he was most likely hitting at the heart of what made this town so famous and so prosperous, and a lot of that prosperity would have trickled down into even the church members, but what we find out here is they were not rich, they were poor, and he's talking spiritually, right? They were spiritually poor. They didn't have twenty-twenty vision, they were spiritually blind. They were not well clothed, in fact, they were spiritually naked, So to call them poor, blind, and naked would have cut to the heart of their civic pride, but more than that, it would have uh, destroyed their moral and spiritual pride, which was a good thing in that case. And the result of all this is that Jesus doesn't see anything to commend about the church in Laodicea. And again, it's the only church that he doesn't give at least a, a, a tiny kernel of a positive statement. I have called them the blind church, not only because Jesus says they're blind, but they're also blind to all their other problems, right? They think they are rich, and they can see well, and they're well clothed, but they're actually poor, blind, and naked. That's the worst place to be, right? When you think everything is perfectly fine, but just the opposite is true of you. Now compare that to what Jesus said to Smyrna, he said to them, I know your poverty, your material poverty, you're rich, you're rich spiritually, but here he says to Laodicea, I I know your town, some of your church members are fabulously wealthy in a material sense, but, but listen, I'm the Lord Jesus and I'm telling you, you are spiritually bankrupt, you're poverty stricken. Strangely enough, the one thing Jesus doesn't mention in this letter to the Church of Laodicea is, is external pressure, like some of the other churches faced, uh, from the, the slanderous Jews and, and internal pressure, the, the false teaching, and they held to the practices of the Nicolaitans, and, and the, the teaching of Jezebel, and the teaching of, of Balaam, uh, all those external and internal pressures. None of that seemed to be happening. Uh, to the church in Laodicea, or at least Jesus didn't, didn't think to mention it. it. It wasn't important to know. Uh, but despite that, despite that relative, so you see, even uh, prosperous in a, in a spiritual sense, they didn't have all those negative pressures. Despite that, they succumbed to their own affluent lifestyle and didn't even know it. See, that's why I see such a stronger comparison to the modern Western church more so than some of these other churches. You know what that also tells us is that prosperity can be more dangerous than persecution. It tells us that our wealth can interfere with our worship. They don't have to, but they easily can and often do. So once you see the whole picture here, it's hard to get past Jesus saying that he is about to vomit them up. We start to understand why he would have such a strong reaction. It's graphic, it's brutal, but it's accurate. But despite this extreme response from Jesus, he still offered an amazingly compassionate invitation to this apostate church. Remember how he uh, was pretty strong with some of the other churches? He said to Ephesus, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Your church will cease to exist. Pergamon, I'm going to come in war against you with the sword of my mouth. And the Sardis, I will come against you. Now, I don't know if that's worse or if it's worse that Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, but but uh, that, that one's pretty bad. But the way he responds to them is uh, arguably, I would say, almost more gentle than the way he responded to the other churches and I think perhaps intentionally so because they're they're so far gone they're they're so far removed from Christ right if you've got like a good friend who who had been doing well and now is straying, right if you have a good friend you can kind of come to them and 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 grab them by the and I I do this a lot I'll do with Tim and other guys I'll just grab you by the shirt collar and you know just goofing with you but but you can you know figuratively grab your good friend by the shirt collar and say listen man well, you're going the wrong way, or have you considered, you know, just, just think what's happening here, right? So you're a little bit more forceful, but somebody who is like really far lost, you don't grab them by the shirt collar. You, 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 you need to woo them back. You need to be a little bit more gentle with them, and, and I, I believe, that, that's my sense, I believe that's what Jesus is doing here with his apostate church, and he does it several ways. First of all, he offers them the free gift of salvation, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to annoy your eyes so that you may see. So, what he's saying is, you know, you're poverty stricken in all these ways, but I, I, I want to remedy that spiritual poverty, that spiritual blindness, and that shameful nakedness by offering them gold, white garments, and healing salve. Think about the contrast. On the one hand, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. And then a little bit later, come and I'll give you gold and white garments and I sat. Now this, I think, is a clear echo to Isaiah 55, where the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, grocery costs are going up. Uh, how do you buy wine and milk without money and without price? The answer is it's free. That's that's what's going on here. You can't buy it without money. Uh, uh, so uh, even though this his invitation, Jesus' invitation to the Laodicean church doesn't say it's free, the implication implication clearly is that it's free. After all, how is a poor person going to buy gold from God? It's not possible. Therefore, it's free. The Laodiceans were spiritually bankrupt. They had nothing to offer Jesus in return. So the gold, the garments, and the eye salve all individually and collectively represented eternal life. And we see this a couple places in Revelation, specifically the garments. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And then we see this glorious picture around the throne. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, nation, uh, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before a lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. All throughout the book of Revelation, you see believers clothed in Jesus' garments, clothed in white robes. That represents salvation. That's what he wants to give, give to him. He's offering this to them. So you and, you and I, in our lostness, we need our spiritual poverty, we need our spiritual blindness, and we need our spiritual nakedness to be remedied. But the problem is, we can't afford the solution. We've got nothing to offer. We cannot afford the gifts that Jesus is offering. You remember, uh, if you're uh, old enough, some people... Uh, may have been saved so young that the memory isn't as, as strong, but uh, when you were saved, what, what what did you bring to the table? What did you come and offer God in exchange for eternal life? Your sin. There you go. There you go. Nothing of yourself except all that is bad. Exactly right. It's exactly right. I got into a conversation this week with someone who uh, is convinced that good works are necessary to accompany God's uh, Jesus saving work. And for good measure, he even quoted James to me, uh, uh, faith without works is dead. So I asked him what is sort of a a classic question when somebody has that belief, how many good works are necessary? How do you know if you've ever done enough good works? I, I asked him a couple times. And if I had more time, I would have loved to have asked him a few more questions, I would have asked him, well, what happens if you're, you're doing a lot of good works, but then you, your pace starts to, to slow down a little bit, you know, is there, is there a meter, you know, it's sort of going like this, oh, you're doing okay, now you're falling in the red, and, you know, can you keep up enough good works, you know, or can you do a lot of good works, and maybe you bank them up, and then, you know, the last 20 years of your life, you're sort of lazy, and I'm just, I'm spending this big bank of good works, May, maybe that's the way it works. Or, or, you know, think about even if you did a hundred good works every day of your life, how does a finite number of good works possibly purchase you eternal life? It can't. And if you could pay for it, what does that say about Jesus' work on the cross? It's frightening. It's a never-ending volley of unanswerable questions. In contrast to that, I love the words of this hymn, and I... Also, love the tune that goes with it. Nothing in my hand. try that again. Nothing in my hands I Simply to your here your face. Calmless I cry. Contrast that with the Laodicean church who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I need nothing. And this person says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Jesus also expressed love for lost sinners So he's offering all these wonderful free gifts representing salvation, but I don't want us to, to think that it's a mere exchange of goods and services because there is eternal love inseparably connected to this eternal gift of salvation. That's because love motivates everything that Jesus does. Every action that he's ever done flows out of perfect, infinite love. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is another, uh, this time a direct quote from, from uh, Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Now we know this from from Proverbs, but also I'm more familiar with it from Hebrews chapter 12. And every time I, I and I, I love that passage from Hebrews chapter 12, and it talks about this father-son language, right? And I always think of it as uh, he's disciplining uh, his children, right? It's, it's a father-son relationship. So, so what's happening in, in this text, because it's a little confusing, there doesn't seem to be any hint of saving faith in this church at Laodicea. In fact, in verse 18, he invited them, to be saved, they've got nothing, so you've got to come and receive this salvation. But then in the very next verse, he's using this father-son uh, implication, daughter-type language. So, so, so which is it? Are they, are they all unbelievers, completely apostate? Or they may maybe just a tiny number of believers, but Jesus doesn't actually tell us that they're there? How do we reconcile the fact that they're desperate for salvation, they're unsaved, but he's using the father-son love language. Well, honestly, I couldn't figure it out. Maybe you have a good answer. I, I, I couldn't figure it out. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if they're unbelievers or believers, because the answer is always the same. Repent. It's always the same, right? Remember this diagram? So if you're in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of judgment, well, you need to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And if you're dwelling forever in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of mercy, well, to have ongoing, deeper fellowship with the Lord, you need to repent. This helps us, to quit, can help us understand and interact maybe with family and friends, somebody that, again, you don't know, uh, have they fallen away? Or maybe they were never saved and, and you're not sure how to, to interact with them at that point. Uh, it doesn't matter. If they uh, uh, were never saved, you, you invite them to Jesus and repent. If you are pretty confident they were saved and they're just now horribly backslidden, you just invite them to trust Jesus and repent. The result is always the same. This also reminds us, we talked about before, that God will use people and circumstances to get our attention, to, to help us lead, lead us to repentance, and oftentimes that involves pain. This is what God does all throughout his working. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. You know what's interesting about those 400 years of slavery? We don't even learn about them until after they're done. Right? Moses comes on the scene. Oh, by the way, we just, they, God's people just went through 400 years of slavery. Now, now God uses that repeatedly. Dozens of times in, in the rest of the Old Testament say, I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. So, so he looks back upon it, but, but we don't know really anything, just little pieces because it was happening. We learned about it afterwards. But 400 years of slavery in the Egypt, 40 years of wandering in the desert. This endless cycle you read all through our Old Testament, endless cycle of oppression by enemies and then deliverance by judges and oppression by enemy, enemies and deliverance by kings or just ongoing oppression and no deliverance. And then you add the fact that, that Satan is allowed to, to rule the world all since the beginning of human history. And then all the plagues and famines that, that God is, is, is kind of tossing in there to get their attention. And then what do you think is going to happen with, with the rest of the book? What's coming? Right? What's coming is the ultimate outpouring of pain to get the world's attention. But even this is mercy. That's the beauty. That's the wonder of it. Even what is coming is mercy. Remember what patience means? Patience is delayed wrath. Patience is saying, yeah, there's wrath coming. There's judgment coming if you don't repent, but I'm delaying it because I'm merciful because all that I do is motivated by love. Those whom he loves, he reproves and disciplines. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And lastly, Jesus invites us into deep Fellowship with him, verse twenty. This shows us what the repentance looks like. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now it's interesting. I, I, I you can judge for yourself which warning was worse. You know, if he says. I'm going to remove your lampstand. Uh, I'm going to come in war against you. I'm going to spit you out of, my, out of your mouth. You can make your own decision here. But, but what, he, what he's trying to get across is you're utterly lost. He says, I, I, he says he loved them by disciplining them. And then beautifully he invites them into full fellowship through repentance. The invitation and the initiative are all with Jesus. It, it always has been that way. Jesus does the dying. Jesus does the the drawing. Jesus does the knocking. Now, does that remind you the knocking? It reminded me immediately of what Jesus says, right, in the Gospels. If anyone to him who knocks, it shall be opened. So there, we're doing the knocking, but here, he is the one doing all the knocking. It also shows us how to respond to his invitation. How, How hard is it? We open the door. And let him in. What, what is that? That's repentance and belief. That's Jesus. You know that was his first sermon? He, he's uh, tempted in the wilderness. Uh, he's, sorry, he's baptized. Then he's tempted in the wilderness. Comes into town. His first sermon is repent and believe the gospel. That was his first sermon. That was his every sermon. We must respond to his offer of salvation. Remember, this is fundamentally we need to personalize this, yes, but this is fundamentally a letter to, to what? To a church. So, so he's not like, he's not like uh, pointing out people here, Jesus is. He's saying the whole church, right? The whole church is lost. You need to repent. Now, it is right. We, we, we can still personalize these things, but we understand that fundamentally the, this is written to a church. And when we do repent, we get this, we share a meal together. Why would Jesus invite us to eat? What's, what's the significance here? We're, we're eating with the Lord Jesus. Well, hospitality was of the highest value in Jewish culture. Then that kind of worked its way into the to early church. You know, if, if somebody came through town uh, on a journey and, and you did not take them in and take care of their animals, we see this throughout the Old Testament, and, and provide for them, and you, there was just your anathema. I mean, that was like, uh, so, it's like talk about social credits, right? In China, I mean, you, you you're just done for in town. Your reputation is ruined. So, so the highest value on that hospitality. But fundamentally, what's going on there? To dine with somebody to, care, to is to care for them and to love that person. So this is. Not just a call to repent, but it is. But it's an invitation to enter into Jesus' presence in a deeper way, a way that you haven't been there before. You've experienced Jesus. Now, I'm talking to the believer here, right? To the unbeliever, you've got to uh, repent uh, of your sins. You know, what Cheryl said, just bring everything to him, every last sin, and just lay it there. Repent. Be zealous in that repentance and believe the gospel but for the rest of us, it's an invitation to, to enter more deeply into his presence. We, we're, we're resting in him in a way that we weren't yesterday. We're abiding in him in a way that we were not doing last week. It's the deepest possible fellowship with him. It's entering into the joy of your master. Now, now we read that and we think, well, that's heaven. That, you know, well done, thou, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. Enter in the joy of your master. And we think, well, that's going to come one day. No, that can happen every day. As you open the door, you, your, your heart is repenting and, and, and believing. You know, maybe it's something that happened this morning. And, and today, uh, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it's a good day. Every day is a good day to repent and believe. But today is a, a really good day. Maybe it's something that, that happened this morning. Maybe it was something this, this past weekend, and you're just now realizing it. You, you, didn't, you didn't intentionally sin, but you're like, wow, I, 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 I did that. I, I've, got to, I've got to correct that. I've got to repent. I've got to go to that person. Maybe it's something you, you entered into it completely aware that this was an obvious sin. You, you've broken fellowship, you, you've taken that, that door and, and you're, you're closing it. You, you haven't lost Jesus, you haven't lost your salvation, but, but your fellowship has waned and he's inviting you. Come and experience the deepest fellowship with the Lord Jesus you've ever had in your life. Is, is that something you want? We have, to, we have to want this. We can't just read about it clinically, theologically. This is something that, that you have to want or, or you're not going to do it. And in the process, you, you hate what you're leaving behind. Right? Because, not just because the sin is so bad, but because Jesus is so amazing. Let's pray. Father, you you are amazing. All the works of your hands, from creation through eternity, and everything in between is, is perfect. You are perfect. We will, in this life, continue to hold on to our sin to to some degree. So we thank you for your spirit who who is is convicting us and and gently wooing us and calling us. Yes, sometimes grabbing us by the shirt collar and saying, stop it, Come, come, come back to me.